0: Information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com.
1: That's C O R I E N T.com. Corient.com. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Daniel Bullen, author of the new book, Daniel Shay's Honorable Rebellion, an American story. Daniel, welcome to the podcast.
2: Great. Thanks for having sure. me. Sure.
1: Well, if someone listening has vaguely heard about Shay's Rebellion, or maybe they're they're not familiar with it, can you give us a quick explanation of Daniel Shay's Rebellion? What happened and why it happened?
2: Sure. Um, So Daniel, so what's known as Shay's Rebellion uh, has been part of the Massachusetts Massachusetts state frameworks for middle school uh, forever. Um, It's basically taught as the unrest that led to the Constitution. And the story that's been kind of handed down to us is that, you know, these farmers were unhappy about taxes, so they created disturbances. They showed up at the gun, at the courts with guns, and the government had to step in and and disperse them. And it highlighted failures in the in the um, Articles of Confederation, and so we needed a stronger federal constitution with a federal army and federal powers of taxation. And you know, that's the story that people are getting. Um, in middle school and you know even at mount vernon's website their their page you know the home of george washington their website has a page for Dan, for shays rebellion and it starts with shays rebellion was a was a violent insurrection in massachusetts um that's pretty much not true um there was sporadic violence after the um the protests were over um but what i found when i dug into this um, was that the, the, the actual story really hadn't been told and it looks a lot like it had been deliberately manipulated. Uh, so the short version is um, the people weren't just angry about taxes. They were watching the government put, put measures in place that were going to cost them their farms. And those measures were explicitly unjust. Like anybody could see that they were paying financiers and speculators at the people's expense. So the principles uh, were were there, you know, the principles were part of this as much as the material consequence that these people might lose their farms, but also having just fought the revolution, um, you know, the revolution ended in 1783 officially. This was 1786, and these people felt like we just fought a war for our liberty, and that means not being pushed off of our farms to pay taxes to, you know, make rich people richer. Um, so they staged... Uh, you know, protests that lasted for five months. They did not fire a shot. They didn't even throw a stone through a courthouse window. Um, And in in the end, the government kind of panicked and fielded an army, and that army dispersed the protesters. But two months later, and this is the part that gets lost in the history, two months later, the people of Massachusetts went to the polls and voted Governor Bowden out by a two-to-one margin, right? I mean, think about our 51, 5149 Elections these days this was sixty six to thirty three <laughs> that they just decided that they had had enough and uh, John Hancock came back. he had been the governor previously, and he came back in and issued reforms and issued pardons and put the state back on a you know a stable footing. Um, so once I started that finding that story um, and looking at it kind of on a day to day week to week basis, I thought why hasn't this been told? And this is going to be a delight to tell this story um, because it let me get into the seasons. It let me get into the farmer's lifestyles and really kind of learn some things about Western Massachusetts and what it was like to live here.
1: And so what was the original impetus for you to
2: write this book, Daniel Shea's Honorable Rebellion? Uh, to be completely honest, I was driving from Amherst to Concord to sell us another book that I'd written about Ralph Waldo Emerson's friendship with Margaret Fuller. And I was driving over to Concord to go talk to the bookstores and the Walden Pond, you know, um, the Thoreau Society's bookstore at, the Walden, at Walden Pond, and drove up what's known as Daniel Shea's Highway. Um, and as I say in the preface, that I, I kind of found this story on the side of the road. I, s- I literally saw this sign. That said Daniel Shays Highway. And I came home and said, right, who is this Daniel Shays fellow? And why is this highway named after him? And once I started reading, um, that was 2012. And once I started reading, um, the the history that I was finding started to kind of match up with things that were in the news. Uh, Occupy had recently been been suppressed by Governor Bloomberg. Um, you know, the riot cops had cleared Zuccotti Park. Bernie Sanders was entering the national scene in 2012. Um, you know, we are the 99% was in the, in the air. Um, and there was really a sense that the, you know, the people were trying to advocate for meaningful changes and then the institutions were resisting that in meaningful ways. And I felt like I was just watching that happen in the history as the people kept, they started with petitions for a year and a half. They sent very polite petitions from constitutionally authorized town meetings And they were systematically ignored. I mean, anything that was proposed in the House of Representatives in Boston was, you know, swept aside by the Senate, which is where the the wealthier people held sway. Um, So nothing got to um, the governor's desk by way of reforms. So when the people were finally, you know, after a year and a half, they finally said, okay, we can't, we can't put up with this anymore. And they started to interrupt the courts. So it just, I felt like I was watching things happen in two times, but it was still kind of the same story.
1: And so what what did you do to research the book, and, and how did you discover the narrative that you're talking about that is um, often overlooked, as you said, in how Shays' Rebellion is taught in middle
2: school and referred to in a lot of right. history? Sure. Um, well, I'm kind of a researcher by trade, and um, I had done something similar to this with um, my first book was The Love Lives of the Artists, where... I told the stories that, again, I had not, you know, hadn't felt that they were well represented in the biographies of artists who'd had kind of unconventional relationships. So, as I started reading, you know, by the time you get to the second or third book, you can start to say, wait a second, this isn't mentioned in the other book. Um, And so, really, what I did to make the backbone of this project was to make a gigantic chronology and start to put things in their places. And what that lets you do is to see the kind of conversational evolution of the crisis. Um, and that was, I think the biggest thing that was missing from the narrative we get through history is, you know, the, the founding fathers, uh, you know, in order to get George Washington out of retirement and sponsor the constitutional convention, um, Henry Knox and others, Stephen Higginson, Alexander Hamilton, um, They had framed these disturbances in Massachusetts as, you know, profoundly threatening an existential threat to the, to the union. Um, Henry Knox from Boston wrote to George Washington at Mount Vernon that 12 or 15,000 unprincipled and degenerate men were preparing to wage a war against government, against the idea of good government and liberty. So they had, they had cherry picked and histories had been cherry picking the evidence to show that the people were these terrifying degenerates who were going to create, uh, you know, a government of—they uh, called it natural law, which is basically might is right, and and mobs can take what they want. Um, and <laughs> what I found in the in our in the newspapers, in the editorials from this time, felt like it was right out of Facebook. I mean, <laughs> on one hand, you have anonymous editorials saying we're going to march to Boston and lay the town in ashes. <laughs> And on the other hand, you have, um, you know, merchants and lawyers and, and business people accusing the people of being uh, lazy degenerates who don't want to work. They just want things for free and they want to take from the wealthy who have worked hard to get what they have and they're being stirred up by foreign agents to, you know, make this trouble in the state. Um, so you can see <laughs> <laughs> why I would, would have found this similarity between then and now. Um, actually our local paper, the Hampshire Gazette was founded in 1786, a month into these, these disturbances in order to give the merchants a mouthpiece for making these accusations against the people. Um, and you know, the reason, well, so those anonymous editorials became the, the justification for calling the people, these, you know, hostile degenerate people, you know, deplorables, if you will um and they've just kind of remained that way throughout history but when you look at the the petitions that they sent in the beginning and you look at you know their flowery wordy you know um almost fawning petitions begging for relief you think wait a second these, these don't sound like violent degenerates waiting to overthrow the government these sound like proud citizens begging for relief from flagrantly um unjust laws And a lot of it ends up being kind of a war of words uh, that took place mostly in the newspaper. Um, I think that a lot of people would have felt fine if the January 6th insurrection had stayed on Facebook. (laughs) You know, if it's just stayed in the comment section, we wouldn't have some of the troubles we have now, but people started acting on it. Um, And I think Daniel Shays was brought in. uh, And this was the story that I really found that I didn't think had been fully told was that I think Daniel Shays was brought in to keep these things under control and to keep anybody from acting on it and to keep the peace so that people could obtain, you know, legitimate, constitutionally meaningful reforms through legitimate channels. Um, and that story, when you put when you put all the words in order, you can watch the escalation happen, but Daniel Shays is not in there um, fanning the flames. And I think there's actually good reason to believe that some of the things that were signed uh, with Daniel Shea's name were not written by him. And that was something he complained about late in the process, that letters had been submitted, had been circulated that he hadn't written. Um, so I felt like there was a really ripe story to be told here. And it just, it took me all over central and Western Massachusetts. These protests happened from Taunton and Concord to Worcester to Springfield to Northampton and out to Great Barrington. And then Daniel Shays, when the movement collapsed in February of 1787, Daniel Shays and 300 men were driven into, re- into exile in Vermont. They marched north on foot, probably on horseback at that point, uh, through New Hampshire, through the southwest corner of New Hampshire, crossed into Vermont between Putney and Brattleboro, and then crossed the state. If you know uh, mm-hmm. Stratton Mountain and Grout Pond, they didn't cross where our Route 9 goes over Hogback Mountain. They crossed through the mountains in eighteen inches of fresh snow, um, and came out in Arlington over by Ethan Allen's um, family homestead, and then camped out there waiting to get redress or to see what would happen next. Um, so it was a it was a great way to, as a transplant from the New York City, you know, New York suburbs area and the Hudson River Valley, which you know I got grow, grew up among that history. This was a great way for me to start making myself familiar with the landscape and what it was what it took for people to live here um just in driving around sure
1: and we've talked about the the protests themselves can you tell us a little
2: bit about Daniel Shays himself sure and this is one of the other things that um was really satisfying to bring to the book um there I just started putting things together. I found some um there somebody had put together information about his um his family history, his descendants, his parents, his siblings um, and I found some resources online that were uh, genealogies of his wife's family. Um, and so we don't know that much about Daniel Shays. He was the son of a uh, Scots-Irish indentured servant. And these were people who had been kind of displaced from the lowlands of Scotland, followed James the First to uh, Northern Ireland to make what they called plantations there um displacing the the irish i mean that was kind of their test run for colonizing america um and then they the scots irish had worked in northern ireland for long enough that landlords came along and started raising the rates raising the rents and forcing people out so by the early 1700s the scots irish were showing up in boston the a community of them set up outside of uh worcester they were moved from boston west to worcester the um the Puritans in Worcester didn't appreciate their presence there, so they pushed them west and they ended up in the hill towns of Pelham and Colerain and Montague. Um, so, you know, Daniel Shay's father was somebody who had sold his service, you know, years of service in order to come to the colonies. Um, and Daniel Shay's was the first son, the third child and first son in that family. Um, and he, he was selling his labor, you know, he was working as a laborer um, from as early as he could. But at one point, he worked on Captain Daniel Gilbert's farm in Brookfield and um, ended up marrying Daniel Gilbert's daughter. So when Daniel Shays marries Gilbert's daughter, um, Gilbert gave him a dowry that allowed him to catapult from laborer into the ranks of gentleman farmers. So Shays made a a settlement or bought a farm in um, Shootsbury and started his family there before the revolution. And then during the revolution, he rose through the ranks, uh, starting at ensign, which is a a rank above private, and came out of the war as a commissioned officer. Um, So again, I think that you can see, even from this rough picture, you can see that Daniel Shays is somebody who has um, has connections at every rank. Right, the officer class has accepted him in. The enlisted men have uh, followed him. He he came from among them. He knows all of their experiences. and he's living among his people with the Scots-Irish, but they're also living in Pelham. He didn't follow his family members north to Vermont or to the western, you know, to eastern New York on the Vermont border, where he had siblings. He stayed within a day's ride of Brookfield. Um, so I'm going to guess that just geographically that his wife's family and Captain Daniel Gilbert uh, remained important to him and to his wife and their five kids. Um So I see him as somebody who was kind of straddling the line, uh, between the upper middle class and the working class people, um, the farmers. And that's, I think that's why he got stuck with responsibility for reigning these protests in because the first time they protested, he declined, he was asked to lead and he declined. Um, and he only took the the reins after the first round of protests was met with extremely (laughs) provocative, uh, threatening language from the state. And then the second round of protests looked like they were going to be you know, inflammatory. So that's when Daniel Shea said, okay, I'll step in and lead. Um, and I see him as kind of a reluctant leader who was kind of trapped in this in this process that was just going to play out the way that it was going to play out. And his name got put on it, <laughs> much to his chagrin, as as I think there's a little bit of evidence that he wasn't thrilled about being in that gotcha. role. Gotcha.
1: Well you mentioned earlier the Massachusetts governor race that uh the governor during this time was defeated um after the protest. Right. What were some of the
2: other outcomes or results of the protests? Um they really the protests didn't change all that much you know beyond bringing things back to the state of the economy before. Um the inflammatory measures that James Bowden had put in place, um, were really explicitly designed to help this financier class. Um, and the, the repeal of that and the repeal of, you know, they restored habeas corpus, uh, when, when Hancock came back in, um, at the end of the day, there were only two people were hung. Um, and those people were hung for having participated in something called Hamlin's raid, uh, which was after the thing had collapsed, but before the elections. Uh, 130 men came back from, you know, these uh, men from the Berkshire County, you know, uh, protesters had fled to New York, and then they came back, um, liberated the prisoners from prison, liberated some rum from people's houses, um, broke into some warehouses, and ended up in a shootout with the local militia, and two of the men from that party were hung for looting, Um but except for the four people who were killed at the Springfield Armory, um, there really, not a lot changed. I mean, they kept a couple of people in prison. There were, there were threats of hangings uh, in May that were pushed back to June. In June, um, Jason Parmenter uh, from Pelham and Henry McCullough, or Jason Parmenter from Bernardston and Henry McCullough from uh, Pelham were talk, taken to the gallows. Nooses were placed around their necks. Um, the, the funeral sermon was preached, and then instead of pulling the traps, the sheriff pulled out a, a stay, uh, so that execution never happened. That the two men were ultimately pardoned. Um, really, what it did was, um, you know, on the national stage, what this did was it gave the um, gave the nationalists or the the nationalists at the time we we you know have would since call them federalists. Um, it gave them fodder to believe that these dangerous poor people these dangerous farmers were going to disrupt the mechanisms of the state um and you know that's really the fear that pulled george washington out of retirement and led to the constitutional convention it does need to be said though um in fairness for history's sake that that movement was well afoot well before these protests even started Um, that there had been conventions in the spring of 86, there'd been a convention in Annapolis in in the fall of 85, um, that party of people had been trying to get these reforms to the articles of confederation for some time already. And this was just a convenient precipitating factor. And I think that there might almost be an argument that, um, the ruling, you know, people in charge of things in Massachusetts just let them spiral so that they could feed this argument. Um, because that the hysteria worked for them it gave them a sense of legitimacy in their government gotcha But i i should say too that um i'm really by telling this story i really told it from the people's perspective kind of from an on the ground uh point of view um so i wasn't i wasn't indulging the historian perspective where you could say meanwhile in boston and just change the scene um if anything happened in boston My perspective for this book stayed rooted in Pelham and, and the Connecticut River Valley. So people would have found out about that when a messenger came charging in on horseback to bring that. So I really didn't take that historian voice and tried to keep it from the people's perspective, uh, for how they would have learned of things happening either by messengers or church bells tolling or, you know, fires on hillsides. Um, I think that they had a lot more communications, uh, options. Um, than we think they do. Um, but you know, those, the newspapers traveled the length of the state and most people were literate. So that's, you know, I think that's part of what fed this was people could see this playing out in the press.
1: Sure. Well, you mentioned earlier about, um, specifically about the press and you compared these, uh, anonymous op-eds or anonymous letters to the editor kind of comparing them to Facebook. I'm I'm curious how do you think Shay's Rebellion is relevant as we sit here in the waning days of
2: 2021 in the US? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um I I mean I think it shows you it raises some questions about where people get their news and what they think is real. Um it really shows you the way that people's news um keeps them from seeing the solidarity I think that they ought to have if they saw themselves as a class of workers, as a class of people who, you know, whose jobs are run by people and with more power. Um, I think that America has gotten very good at um, keeping that class from coming together. I mean, when I was writing this book, you know, Bernie Sanders was stirring up the national scene. I was working on this book straight through the Trump presidency. Um, And I couldn't help but notice that there were a lot of people um, on the Trump side who were saying the same things as people on the Bernie side. You know, our government's been captured by powerful interests, and we need to take power back and give it to the people. Um, I just think that the media has gotten very good at making sure those people never get together uh, from the right and the left and start seeing themselves as one class. Um, and I think that that partially, to my mind, that explains why Bernie Sanders was never really let in um, to the system, why they worked so hard to keep him out. Um, but I think one of the other things that it really shows is something that we saw last summer, which is, um, after the protests following George Floyd's murder, lots of people got in the streets and it was a chaotic scene and, and people were, uh, upset and nervous about what was happening, but those protests had real consequences. And it wasn't electoral consequences necessarily. They directly led to the reallocation of tens or hundreds of millions of dollars nationwide um, from police departments in cities, in city budgets. And those consequences were not the result of electing Democrats. The, The cities where these things took place had been run by Democrats for a long time, but they changed the power structure between elected officials and police unions and police budgets and people started looking for different ways to do things. And I think that when people get involved in politics, um, I mean, that's, I think, the real story to this uh, to this book and the real relevance today is that when people get into the politics, uh, when they get in the streets, different kinds of things happen than when they just get into the voting booth, right? By the time they get you to the voting booth, they've narrowed down the options for you. But when people are in the streets, there's this hysteria that goes with <laughs> And nobody's sure what's going to happen, and everybody can imagine the worst. And that I think that that fear kind of brings people together. Um, And I do need to say, too, that one of the reasons I've been so proud to tell this story is that, again, I think I've mentioned this before, the people kept the peace meticulously for five months. I mean, they showed up with guns at the courthouses, but by showing up with guns, what they were saying to the populace was, we're the proud veterans who fought for your freedom. We have discipline, we know our roles, and we have the discipline to keep these guns at our shoulders, and you don't have to be afraid that we're the democratic mobs come to take things from wealthy people. Um, we don't mind inequality, it's really injustice that's going to be hard for us to swallow, and we're being, you know, we're the victims of this injustice and we're asking you to support us, right? And by, by keeping those guns at their shoulders, they're, they're showing that the people don't have anything to, to be afraid of. Of course, in Boston, once that news gets to Boston and the rumors have inflated the numbers of people, it looks like 30,000 armed, drunken people are rioting in the streets um, and, you know, tearing everything up. And now it seems to call for repressive measures. Um, But some of the repressive measures they passed just fanned the flames. I mean, after the first rounds of protests, the governor passed a riot act that criminalized gatherings. Um, And the penalty was a year in prison with whippings, 39 stripes every three months and forfeiting land and property to the state. And in addition to that, deputies were immunized to liability for any uh, deaths or injuries they caused during, you know, dispersing these protests. So for people who had just fought, fought off the crown and fought to have more rights than that, watching this riot act get. Past was just completely intolerable, and there was no way that the government was going to resolve this uh, by clamping down on it that way. It just more brought more people out. Interesting.
1: Well, what books, novels, or nonfiction have you been reading lately that
2: you've enjoyed and would recommend? Um, you know, I'm so I'm working on a novel right now, and it's um, it's a little bit out there, but it draws heavily on mythology um, and different ways that, you know, myths seem real to people. Um, I'm really fascinated with the stories we tell as, as, you know, supposedly technically advanced industrial, industrial age people. I still think there are a lot of fictions that we tell ourselves about how the world works. Um, so I've gone back to, I think it's one of the best books is Roberto Colasso's book, the marriage of Cadmus and harmony um and that marriage feast where Cadmus and Harmony were married was the last time that the gods sat down with people at the same banquet and after that the gods were at a distance and the people went about their business you know remotely uh from the gods presence um but Roberto Colasso is just it's really genius uh his the intelligence in this book is is really deep and the uh i don't know his heart just seems really capacious and the the sentences you get in the out of these stories um, they just keep turning over into these different kinds of puzzles, uh, which I find really stimulating, um, and fascinating to go back to. It's a really deep, well, I can just keep going back to, um, that's probably the one I've been digging around in the most. And then just kind of dipping in, I'm always asking people these days what they're reading so I can see, um, you know, what's, what's good to add to the list because I've kind of hit a dead end. I think it's time to, to get new that's juice. So I'll have I'll have to ask you the same thing.
1: <laughs> uh, well, where can people find
2: you online if they'd like to learn more about you and your book? Sure. Um, I've got a personal website that's just Daniel dot com. I've also built a website for the Shays uh, project, which is at honorablerebellion.com, com. And that's got more resources about the protests. And it's got a timeline to show how things progressed. Um I really kind of designed that to be useful for kids who were doing research on this. Um, And then, you know, the book is for sale in all the regular places. Uh, West Holm Press uh, has their website as W-E-S-T-H-O-L-M-E is the source. And then, you know, all the other bookstore places. Um, I've been hearing from a number of people. They're getting it at, um, you know, the the small independents around, uh, which is always nice to hear. That those places are stocking it so i think it's about to be approved for um sale at the springfield armory national historic site which is kind of one of the ground zeros for things related to daniel shays since that's where the shots were fired um but uh i think it's starting to get out and about but yeah my personal website and then the um uh honorable oh i do have a facebook page as well that which, which is the book's title daniel shays honorable rebellion so it's,
1: it's Great. Out there. Well, again, we've been speaking with Daniel Bullen, author of the new book, Daniel Shays' Honorable Rebellion, An American Story. The book is available now, so go buy a copy from your local independent bookstore. And Daniel, thanks for doing this interview.
2: Thanks so much. I just I, I do want to close by saying that Bruce Franklin and the West Home Press folks did a beautiful job with this book. I'm so delighted with the the art. They've just made a really gorgeous artifact. Uh, with my story inside of it. So I, I could not be happier. And uh, I really am t- been delighted by the chance to, to meet with you and talk about it to your folks. So That's thank great.
1: You. And like you said, you can check out the West Home Press uh, website to, to learn more there as well. Great, Daniel. Thanks.